0: Chapter 3, Part 1 of The Seven Lamps of Architecture. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit librivox.org. Recording by Todd Albright. The Seven Lamps of Architecture by John Ruskin. Chapter 3, The Lamp of Power, Part 1. 1. In recalling the impressions we have received from the works of man, after a lapse of time, long enough to involve in obscurity all but the most vivid, it often happens that we find a strange pre-eminence and durability in many upon whose strength we had little calculated, and that points of character which had escaped the detection of the judgment became developed under the waste of memory, as veins of harder rock, whose places could not at first have been discovered by the eye, are left salient under the action of frosts and streams the traveller who desires to correct the errors of his judgment necessitated by inequalities of temper infelicities of circumstance and accidents of association has no other resource than to wait for the calm verdict of interposing years and to watch for the new arrangements of eminence and shape in the images which remain latest in his memory as in the ebbing of a mountain lake he would watch the varying outlines of its successive shore, and trace, in the form of its departing waters, the true direction of the forces which had cleft, or the currents which had excavated the deepest recesses of its primal bed. In thus reverting to the memories of those works of architecture by which we have been most pleasurably impressed, it will generally happen that they fall into two broad classes, the one characterized by an exceeding preciousness and delicacy, to which we recur with a sense of affectionate admiration, and the other by a severe and in many cases mysterious majesty, which we would remember with an undiminished awe, like that felt at the presence and operation of some great spiritual power. For about these two groups, more or less harmonized by intermediate examples, but always distinctively marked by features of beauty or of power, there will be swept away in multitudes the memories of buildings, perhaps in their first address to our minds of no inferior pretension, but owing their impressiveness to characters of less enduring nobility, to value of material, accumulation of ornament, or ingenuity of mechanical construction. A special interest may indeed have been awakened by such circumstances, and the memory may have been consequently rendered tenacious of particular parts or effects of the structure but it will recall even these only by an active effort and then without emotion while in passive moments and with thrilling influence the image of purer beauty and of more spiritual power will return in a fair and solemn company and while the pride of many a stately palace, and the wealth of many a jewelled shrine, perish from our thoughts in a dust of gold, there will rise through their dimness the white image of some secluded marble chapel, by river or forest side, with the fretted flower-work shrinking under its arches as if under vaults of late fallen snow, or the vast weariness of some shadowy wall, whose separate stones are like mountain foundations, and yet numberless. 2. Now the difference between these two orders of building is not merely that which there is in nature between things beautiful and sublime. It is also the difference between what is derivative and original in man's work, for whatever is in architecture fair or beautiful is imitated from natural forms, and what is not so derived but depends for its dignity upon arrangement and government received from human mind becomes the expression of the power of that mind, and receives a sublimity high in proportion to the power expressed. All building, therefore, shows man either as gathering or governing, and the secrets of his success are his knowing what to gather and how to rule. These are the two great intellectual lamps of architecture, the one consisting in a just and humble veneration for the works of God upon the earth, and the other in an understanding of the dominion over those works which has been vested in man. 3. Besides this expression of living authority and power, there is, however, a sympathy in the forms of noble building with what is most sublime in natural things, and it is the governing power directed by this sympathy whose operation I shall at present endeavor to trace, abandoning all inquiry into the more abstract fields of invention. For this latter faculty, and the questions of proportion and arrangement connected with its discussion, can only be rightly examined in a general view of all arts but its sympathy in architecture, with the vast controlling powers of nature herself, is special, and may shortly be considered, and that with the more advantage that it has, of late, been little felt or regarded by architects. I have seen in recent efforts much contest between two schools, one affecting originality, and the other legality, many attempts at beauty of design, many ingenious adaptations of construction, but i have never seen any aim at the expression of abstract power never any appearance of a consciousness that in this primal art of man there is room for the making of his relations with the mightiest as well as the fairest works of god and that those works themselves have been permitted by their master and his to receive an added glory for their association with earnest efforts of human thought in the edifices of man there should be found reverent worship and following, not only of the spirit which rounds the pillars of the forest and arches the vault of the avenue, which gives veining to the leaf and polish to the shell and grace to every pulse that agitates animal organization, but of that also which reproves the pillars of the earth and builds up her barren precipices into the coldness of the clouds and lifts her shadowy cones of mountain purple into the pale arch of the sky for these, and other glories more than these, refuse not to connect themselves in his thoughts with the work of his own hand. The grey cliff loses not its nobleness when it reminds us of some cyclopean waste of mural stone. The pinnacles of the rocky promontory arrange themselves undegraded into fantastic semblances of fortress towers, and even the awful cone of the far-off mountain has a melancholy, mixed with that of its own solitude which is cast from the images of nameless tumuli on white sea and of the heaps of reedy clay into which chambered cities melt in their mortality for let us then see what is this power and majesty which nature herself does not disdain to accept from the works of man and what that sublimity in the masses built up by his coralline like energy which is honourable even when transferred by association to the dateless hills which it needed earthquakes to lift and deluges to mould and first of mere size it might not be thought possible to emulate the sublimity of natural objects in this respect nor would it be if the architect contended with them in pitched battle it would not be well to build pyramids in the valley of the chamonix and st peter's among its many other eras counts for not the least injurious its position on the slope of an inconsiderable hill but imagine it placed on the plain of marengo or like the superga of turin or like la salute at venice the fact is that the apprehension of the size of natural objects as well as of architecture depends more on fortunate excitement of the imagination than on measurements by the eye and the architect has a peculiar advantage in being able to press close upon the site such magnitude as he can command. There are few rocks, even among the Alps, that have a clear vertical fall as high as the choir of Beauvais. And if we secure a good precipice of wall, or a sheer and unbroken flank of tower, and place them where there are no enormous natural features to oppose them, we shall feel in them no want of sublimity of size. And it may be matter of encouragement in this respect, though one also of regret, to observe how much oftener man destroys natural sublimity than nature crushes human power. It does not need much to humiliate a mountain. A hut will sometimes do it. I never look up the Col de Balm from Chamonix without a violent feeling of provocation against its hospitable little cabin, whose bright white walls form a visibly four-square spot on the green ridge, and entirely destroy all idea of its elevation. A single villa will often mar a whole landscape, and dethrone a dynasty of hills, and the Acropolis of Athens, Parthenon, and all has, I believe, been dwarfed into a model by the palace lately built beneath it. The fact is that hills are not so high as we fancy them and when to the actual impression of no mean comparative size is added the sense of the toil of manly hand and thought a sublimity is reached which nothing but gross error in arrangement of its parts can destroy five while therefore it is not to be supposed that mere size will ennoble a mean design yet every increase of magnitude will bestow upon it a certain degree of nobleness so that it is well to determine at first whether the building is to be markedly beautiful or markedly sublime, and if the latter, not to be withheld by respect to smaller parts from reaching largeness of scale, provided only that it be evidently in the architect's power to reach at least that degree of magnitude which is the lowest at which sublimity begins, rudely definable as that which will make a living figure look less than life beside it. IT IS THE MISFORTUNE OF MOST OF OUR MODERN BUILDINGS THAT WE WOULD FAIN HAVE A UNIVERSAL EXCELLENCE IN THEM, AND SO PART OF THE FUNDS MUST GO IN PAINTING, PART IN GILDING, PART IN FITTING UP, PART IN PAINTED WINDOWS, PART IN SMALL STEEPLES, PART IN ORNAMENTS HERE AND THERE, AND NEITHER THE WINDOWS NOR THE steeple NOR THE ORNAMENTS ARE WORTH THEIR MATERIALS, FOR THERE IS A CRUST ABOUT THE IMPRESSIBLE PART OF MEN'S MINDS which must be pierced through before they can be touched to the quick. And though we may prick at it and scratch at it in a thousand separate places, we might as well have let it alone if we do not come through somewhere with a deep thrust. If we can give such a thrust anywhere, there is no need of another. It need not be even so wide as a church door so that it be enough. And mere weight will do this. It is a clumsy way of doing it, but an effectual one, too. And the apathy which cannot be pierced through by a small steeple, nor shown through by a small window, can be broken through in a moment by the mere weight of a great wall. Let, therefore, the architect who has not large resources choose his point of attack first, and, if he choose size, let him abandon decoration. For unless they are concentrated and numerous enough to make their concentration conspicuous, all his ornaments together would not be worth one huge stone. And the choice must be a decided one, without compromise. It must be no question whether his capitals would not look better with a little carving. Let him leave them huge as blocks, or whether his arches should not have richer architraves. Let him throw them a foot higher if he can. A yard more across the nave will be worth more to him than a tessellated pavement and another fathom of outer wall than an army of pinnacles the limitation of size must be only in the uses of the building or in the ground at his disposal six that limitation however being by such circumstances determined by what means it is to be next asked may the actual magnitude be best displayed since it is seldom perhaps never that a building of any pretension to size, looks so large as it is. The appearance of a figure in any distant, more especially in any upper, parts of it, will almost always prove that we have underestimated the magnitude of those parts. It has often been observed that a building, in order to show its magnitude, must be seen all at once. It would perhaps be better to say, must be bounded as much as possible by continuous lines, and that its extreme points should be seen all at once, or we may state in simpler terms still, that it must have one visible bounding line from top to bottom, and from end to end. This bounding line from top to bottom may either be inclined inwards, and the mass therefore pyramidical, or vertical, and the mass form one grand cliff, or inclined outwards, as in the advancing fronts of old houses, and in a sort in the Greek temple, and in all buildings with heavy cornices or heads. Now in all these cases, if the bounding line be violently broken, if the cornice project, or the upper portion of the pyramid recede too violently, majesty will be lost, not because the building cannot be seen all at once, for in the case of a heavy cornice no part of it is necessarily concealed, but because the continuity of its terminal line is broken and the length of that line, therefore, cannot be estimated. But the error is, of course, more fatal when much of the building is also concealed, as in the well-known case of the recession of the Dome of St. Peter's, and from the greater number of points of view in churches whose highest portions, whether dome or tower, are over their cross. Thus there is only one point from which the size of the Cathedral of Florence is felt, and that is from the corner of the Via de Balastrieri, opposite the southeast east angle, where it happens that the dome is seen rising instantly above the apse and transepts. In all cases in which the tower is over the cross, the grandeur and height of the tower itself are lost, because there is but one line down which the eye can trace the whole height, and that is in the inner angle of the cross, not easily discerned. Hence, while in symmetry and feeling, such designs may often have pre-eminence. Yet, where the height of the tower itself is to be made apparent, it must be at the west end, or better still, detached as a campanile. Imagine the loss to the Lombard churches if their campaniles were carried only to their present height over their crosses, or to the Cathedral of Rouen if the Tour de Bourre were made central in the place of its present debased spire. 7. Whether, therefore, we have to do with tower or wall, there must be one bounding line from base to coping, and I am much inclined myself to love the true vertical, or the vertical with a solemn frown of projection, not a scowl, as in the Palazzo Vecchio of Florence. This character is always given to rocks by the poets, with slight foundation indeed, real rocks being little given to overhanging, but with excellent judgment for the sense of threatening conveyed by this form is a nobler character than that of mere size. And in buildings this threatening should be somewhat carried down into their mass. A mere projecting shelf is not enough. The whole wall must, Jupiter-like, nod as well as frown. Hence I think the propped macacolations of the Palazzo Vecchio and Duomo of Florence far grander headings than any form of Greek cornice. Sometimes the projection may be thrown lower, as in the Doge's Palace of Venice, where the chief appearance of it is above the second arcade. Or it may become a grand swell from the ground, as the head of a ship of the line rises from the sea. This is very nobly attained by the projection of the niches in the third story of the Tour de Bourg at Rouen. 8. What is needful in the setting forth of magnitude in height is right also in the marking it in area let it be gathered well together it is especially to be noted with respect to the palazzo vecchio and other mighty buildings of its order how mistakenly it has been stated that dimension in order to become impressive should be expanded either in height or length but not equally whereas rather it will be found that those buildings seem on the whole the vastest which have been gathered up into a mighty square, and which look as if they had been measured by the angel's rod, the length and the breadth and the height of it are equal. And herein something is to be taken notice of, which I believe not to be sufficiently, if at all, considered among our architects. Of the many broad divisions under which architecture may be considered, none appear to me more significant than that into buildings whose interest is in their walls and those whose interest is in the lines dividing their walls. In the Greek temple the wall is as nothing. The entire interest is in the detached columns and the frieze they bear. In French flamboyant and in our detestable perpendicular, the object is to get rid of the wall surface, and keep the eye altogether on tracery of line. In Romanesque work and Egyptian, the wall is a confessed and honored member, and the light is often allowed to fall on large areas of it, variously decorated. Now, both these principles are admitted by nature, the one in her woods and thickets, the other in her plains and cliffs and waters, but the latter is preeminently the principle of power, and in some sense of beauty also. For whatever infinity of fair form there may be in the maze of the forest, there is a fairer, as I think, in the surface of the quiet lake, and i hardly know that association of shaft or tracery for which i would exchange the warm sleep of sunshine on some smooth broad human-like front of marble nevertheless if breadth is to be beautiful its substance must in some sort be beautiful and we must not hastily condemn the exclusive resting of the northern architects in divided lines, until at least we have remembered the difference between a blank surface of cayenne stone, and one mixed from Genoa and Carrara, of serpentine with snow. But as regards abstract power and awfulness, there is no question. Without breadth of surface it is in vain to seek them, and it matters little so that the surface be wide, bold, and unbroken, whether it be of brick or of jasper the light of heaven upon it and the weight of earth in it are all we need for it is singular how forgetful the mind may become both of material and workmanship if only it have space enough over which to range and to remind it however feebly of the joy that it has in contemplating the flatness and sweep of great plains and broad seas and it is a noble thing for men to do this with their cut stone or moulded clay and to make the face of a wall look infinite, and its edge against the sky like a horizon, or even if less than this be reached, it is still delightful to mark the play of passing light on its broad surface, and to see by how many artifices and gradations of tinting in shadow time and storm will set their wild signatures upon it, and how in the rising or declining of the day the unbroken twilight rests long and luridly "'on its high, lineless forehead, "'and fades away untraceably "'down its tiers of confused and countless stone. "'9. "'This, then, being, as I think, "'one of the peculiar elements of sublime architecture, "'it may be easily seen "'how necessarily consequent upon the love of it "'will be the choice of a form "'approaching to the square for the main outline. "'For in whatever direction the building is contracted,' in that direction the eye will be drawn to its terminal lines, and the sense of surface will only be at its fullest when those lines are removed in every direction as far as possible. Thus the square and circle are preeminently the areas of power among those bounded by purely straight or curved lines, and these, with their relative solids, the cube and sphere, and relative solids of progression, as in the investigation of the laws of proportion i shall call those masses which are generated by the progression of an area of given form along a line in a given direction the square and cylindrical column are the elements of utmost power in all architectural arrangements on the other hand grace and perfect proportion require an elongation in some one direction and a sense of power may be communicated to this form of magnitude by a continuous series of any marked features, such as the eye may be unable to number, while yet we feel, from their boldness, decision, and simplicity, that it is indeed their multitude which has embarrassed us, not any confusion or indistinctness of form. This expedient of continued series forms the sublimity of arcades and aisles, of all ranges of columns, and, on a smaller scale, of those Greek mouldings of which repeated as they now are in all the meanest and most familiar forms of our furniture it is impossible altogether to weary now it is evident that the architect has choice of two types of form each properly associated with its own kind of interest or decoration the square or greatest area to be chosen especially when the surface is to be the subject of thought and the elongated area when the divisions of the surface are to be the subjects of thought both these orders of form as i think nearly every other source of power and beauty are marvellously united in that building which i fear to weary the reader by bringing forward too frequently as a model of all perfection the doge's palace at venice its general arrangement a hollow square its principal façade an oblong elongated to the eye by a range of thirty-four small arches and thirty-five columns while it is separated by a richly canopied window in the centre into two massive divisions, whose height and length are nearly as four to five, the arcades which give it length being confined to the lower stories, and the upper, between its broad windows, left a mighty surface of smooth marble, chequered with blocks of alternate rose-colour and white. It would be impossible, I believe, to invent a more magnificent arrangement of all that is in building most dignified and most fair. Ten. In the Lombard Romanesque, the two principles are more fused into each other as most characteristically in the Cathedral of Pisa. Length of proportion exhibited by an arcade of twenty-one arches above and fifteen below at the side of the nave. Bold square proportion in the front, that front divided into arcades, placed one above the other, the lowest with its pillars engaged of seven arches. The four uppermost thrown out boldly from the receding wall, and casting deep shadows. The first above the basement of nineteen arches, the second of twenty-one, the third and fourth of eight each, sixty-three arches in all, all circular-headed, all with cylindrical shafts, and the lowest with square panelings. Set diagonally under their semicircles, an universal ornament in this style, plate twelve, figure seven the apse a semicircle with a semi-dome for its roof and three ranges of circular arches for its exterior ornament in the interior of the nave a range of circular arches below a circular arched triforium and a vast flat surface observe of wall decorated with striped marble above the whole arrangement not a peculiar one but characteristic of every church of the period and to my feeling the most majestic not perhaps the fairest but the mightiest type of form which the mind of man has ever conceived based exclusively on associations of the circle and the square i am now however trenching upon ground which i desire to reserve for more careful examination in connection with other aesthetic questions but i believe the examples i have given will justify my vindication of the square form from the reprobation which has been lightly thrown upon it, nor might this be done for it only as a ruling outline, but as occurring constantly in the best mosaics, and in a thousand forms of minor decoration, which I cannot now examine. My chief assertion of its majesty, being always as it is an exponent of space and surface, and therefore to be chosen either to rule in their outlines, or to adorn by masses of light and shade, those portions of buildings in which surface is to be rendered precious or honourable. End of chapter 3, part 1. Recording by Todd Albrecht.